Right, just before we start, just putting it out there, that at some point in the next 40 minutes, I lose it. <laughs> Don't really know what to say other than it's a little unlike me. Um, it's a subject very close to my heart. But we do go into the red a bit at one point in today's podcast. Nothing bad, nothing major, no swearing, just uh, just a lot of passion. And that's what this pod's about. It's sport and the feels. My name's Jonathan Overend. This is episode five. It's in association with Aldi UK, official supermarket partner of Team GB. Make sure you subscribe and you'll get a new episode for every day of full competition at the postponed Tokyo 2020 Games. my co-host for this edition it's the first time we've welcomed him onto this series so uh, let's say hello to marcus buckland how are you jonathan i'm very well i'm thrilled to be part of all this and i feel a little bit of a fraud because you guys are no. such experts when it comes to the olympics uh, and one of my great broadcasting regrets is that i've only covered two of them in 96 and 2012 but those two were so special well, you took the commercial dollar didn't you uh, well, so you, you, yes, can't, you can't have any yes, regrets you can't have regrets but i'd love to you know because I, I i followed you guys in you know in 2000 2004 and thought oh I, i'd like to be part of that but 96 was very very special though because we had a solid crew in terms of the bbc radio staff there were some legends of um, the broadcasting what i always remember cliff morgan we we were on the coach going from the airport to where the bbc had had put us up which was miles away from the actual venue and cliff morgan rugby legend broadcasting legend very funny man as well was at the back of the bus and <laughs> the further this journey continued the more angry and outraged he became at uh, what has the bbc i'm not even going to attempt to do his welsh accent but what have the bbc done sending us out here in the middle of nowhere and and it was hysterical and i i just sat there thinking i am part of bbc national radio i've got cliff morgan making everybody laugh and um this is the olympic games and it was uh, three of the most special weeks of my whole career. Yeah. Has a bad reputation, though, Atlanta, doesn't it, for one reason or another? Was it really that bad? Yeah, well, I had very little to judge it on because it was the first time I'd been there. I do remember because, you know, that Atlanta had its problems and they they cleaned up the city centre. And I do remember occasionally when we would be driving home, you would suddenly see areas where there were a lot of people who'd obviously just been left to get on with themselves, homeless people, um, and, and there was that underlying air of, um, you know, what's going on behind the scenes here. And of course, also from a British perspective, we, we had a disaster. Barely a medal was won. So there, there were some downsides to it, but it was my debut uh, and I loved every minute of it. He, even when I was sent to do the boxing, I know nothing about boxing. And they said, yep, go off. You're going to watch David Burke. Featherweight, round of 32 match. I remember it to this day against the guy called Falk Hoost. <laughs> And I was terrified, but, um, you know, it was all part of the fun, the adrenaline to be involved in something very, very different and special. Well, you were, th you were there primarily, I guess, for the tennis, weren't you? Yes, I was um, sent off to Stone Mountain Park, which, again, was quite a long way away from everywhere else. But it was a beautiful surrounding. And uh, the Americans actually really took to it because Agassi won gold. Uh, Lindsay Davenport also won gold. And a lot of people forget that Tim Henman, along with Neil Broad, yes. won a, a silver medal silver in the doubles. Medal. Yeah. So actually, it became quite high profile for a time. I, for, yeah, again, from a, a personal point of view, on the Saturday afternoon, it must have been, I guess it was the, the day of the finals, we hosted the show. It was, I think it was the first time that I actually hosted 
what would have been, you know, sport on five in the afternoon. So it was doubly exciting from that point of view, because as a kid, all I can remember is hearing that music. It's sports report. It's five o'clock. And I said to my, my dad way back in the, well, I'm old now, but it would have been in the, in the early 80s, I think, that one day I'm going to host that show. Um, and that was the afternoon that I did actually host it for the first time. And uh, it was uh, a great thrill. Yeah, and in terms of the sport you saw elsewhere, well, Michael Johnson sort of in his, in his prime? I was lucky enough to get tickets to go and watch Michael Johnson. You know, the shoes, no one's going to forget those golden shoes no. and the roar. I've heard a lot of people actually can, well, you can't compare it, but at London on that extraordinary Saturday afternoon when we had three goals in, what, 44 minutes, my nephew went that day. And um, I asked him afterwards, well, you know, what, that must have been amazing. What, what was the greatest thing of all about it? And actually, he said, first of all, the hamburgers, um, which I thought, well, he's, he's 12 years old. OK, yeah, you, you had a nice hamburger at the Olympic. Apart, apart from that. But, but yeah. then he did say, he said... Anything else? The roar. He just said the roar was something he'd never experienced before. And, and that echoed with me because when Johnson just went pounding around, you know, his legs running so fast that the rest of his body can't really keep up with him. It was just spine tingling. Talking about it now, I've, I've got the tingles going down my spine again. And I'm a man really who's, who's been more into his football and his, his golf and his, his tennis, but that is as a great uh, a couple of minutes as, as I've ever witnessed. But we heard that throughout 2012. You know, if you fast forward to 2012, and you were, you were at the badminton, weren't you, throughout yes. the, the, the London Games? You know, we were hearing those roars, not just on... It didn't take just Super Saturday. You know, we were, we were roaring for, for volleyball players, and we were roaring at the handball and at the taekwondo, and you probably heard it at the badminton as well. The, the spirit that the, was captured over those three weeks in the capital city, Marcus. Yeah. Did, you must have felt that. Absolutely. Well, as you say, I was at the badminton, so I spent my time at Wembley Arena, although I did go with my family one night to watch the table tennis. And again, people are roaring and cheering, even if sometimes they didn't even know who they were roaring or cheering for. You just get into it, whatever it is. It's, it's the most important thing in the world because you've got the Olympics on your doorstep, as we had in 2012. And I just loved getting involved in a sport that I didn't know much about. Uh, and you meet people who are so passionate about it and have this big battle with regards to the racket sports, which is the toughest. Is it tennis? Is it squash? Is it badminton? And having watched that badminton, Jonathan, and in particular, I remember one injury. This I, I can't remember who it was, but they turned their ankle in the most horrendous way. I've never heard such a, a loud scream in my life. And you just realise then the brutal um, physicality of badminton. The fact they have to mop up the court every few minutes because the sweat is pouring. Sweat. It's, it's, yeah. It was unbelievably well, special. Well, I'd had the same experience uh, at Athens in, in 2004. Again, um, like you, tennis was my, my main assignment. But then Gail Ems and Nathan Robertson go on a little bit of a run. They're in the quarterfinals and you know, obviously win the quarterfinals and you've got a guaranteed medal and who knows where the story is going to end. So they dispatch me over to the badminton. Next thing you know, it's full match commentary. Full <laughs> match commentary. Good luck. On BBC Radio. And, uh, oh, I've never been so frightened in all my life. But I thought it went pretty well. It was a good match. I mean, a really good Gale played some amazing badminton that day. So back I trotted to the IBC, you know, with a little glowing with a little bit of pride at having done something unconventional that seemed to go OK. And the first thing someone said to me when I went through the door was, well, yeah, it, it, was, it was pretty good. But just that thing about what you were calling the shuttlecock. And I said, oh, yeah, well, what, what's that? 
and it transpired I'd been I'd been subbing down the very long word shuttlecock on more than one occasion, and let's just say I wasn't using the term shuttle. Oh no! Um, oh dear! Yeah. Actually, <laughs> funnily enough, that reminds me of Sybil Rusco, the 1996 Olympics, when she was sent off to do some rowing and kept re- reporting on the cockless fours. Of oh, the cockless fours. Yes. <laughs> that still stands out 24 years later. Brilliant. Right, enough of that. Let's get ready to welcome our guest onto the pod. And we've called this edition The End, not just because we want to talk about the end of an athlete's career, retirement, but because we wonder about those moments during the career and in this athlete's case, right at the very start of their career as well, when you fear the end might have arrived. We're going to talk to a multiple world champion, a multiple Commonwealth gold medalist, but someone whose career almost came to an end midway through because of a horrendous car accident, and as she's about to reveal, almost came to an end before she'd even gone to the first of her four Olympic Games. She went on to have an incredible career, and she is Karen Pickering. So Karen, four as an athlete, Three as a broadcaster, I make it. Seven Olympic Games in a row, would that be right? Yes, and I would have been on a plane to Tokyo today. I know. So my flight I out know. was due to be, so it would have been number Sad, eight. But yeah, it? seven. I guess that sometimes you just think that the, um, the amount of effort and money that people spend to go and watch Olympic Games and be part of it, and I've just been lucky enough to have, you know, front row seats at um, seven games. So, Karen, if someone had said to you back in 1992 that you're going to be involved in seven in a row and it should actually be eight, would you have believed them? What what was your game plan back then? Well, actually, if you go back four years, I was controversially not selected for Seoul. So kind of growing up as a swimmer, you know, most swimmers had retired in their early 20s. It wasn't really a long career um, for lots of reasons, finances, the type of training people did. And so when I wasn't selected, um, and I, you know, would have been 16 then, I thought, well, that's it, I'm never going to go to an Olympic Games. And sort of in my head, I thought, well, I'm going to be a swimmer for a while. And then I'm going to have to take up athletics, because the runners seem to be able to go on a lot longer. So, you know, I had in my head, what am I going to do when my swimming career is over by the time I'm 20? So, yeah, not not a chance did I think I would be, you know, competing at four. And then obviously it was um, the dream job to, to then go on to commentate. So, so at the age of 16, you, you really weren't set on a, a, a long swimming career. You, you, you were literally thinking of the next games. So when you weren't selected for Seoul, you thought that's it. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, because, I mean, there was no precedent, really, for swimmers going on into their 20s. Um, you know, if you if you look to the national team then, and there were, there were all these, like, wonder kids, these young swimmers who were phenomenal in their teens. A lot of the swimmers on the national team at the time, they were, you know, either studying or they were on the dole so that they could fit their training in. They had to desperately try hard not to get their passport stamped as they went through passport controllers. So they wouldn't be able to pick up their dole money when they got back if they'd been abroad. <laughs> so, you know, it was a very different times. And, um, you know, there, was no, there wasn't really anyone for me to look at and think, oh, I've got this long career. And then some of the swimmers started to make comebacks, the likes of 
June Croft and then Sharon Davis started to come back after a bit of time off and started to think, well, okay, you know, it's not a physical reason why you can't do it. It's it's kind of, it's all the other reasons, the finance, the having to get a proper job. Um, but it was it was really my generation, sort of myself, Mark Foster and a couple of others who were the first to be able to start actually making swimming a full-time job and led by obviously Adrian Morehouse who who carried on and was um, very successful with sponsorship but probably not in modern day terms Um, and so we were sort of the first generation that really just carried on and, and retired when we wanted to rather than when we had to. And, and just going back to one other thing you said there, Karen, you said, OK, maybe I'll be a swimmer for four years and then I'll switch to <laughs> athletics. I mean, was that realistic? Were you that good as a potential athlete as well? No, but um, I wasn't particularly good as a swimmer as a kid either. So, you know, when I'm looking, thinking, well, my life plan, you know, it, was, it wasn't like I'd shown a great deal of talent when I was planning that anyway. So, so in my head, I could do whatever I wanted if I trained hard enough. <laughs> That's a great attitude to have. Uh, Jonathan, I know that one of the themes of, of this particular episode is perseverance. And Karen, I know one of your pet hates is when people suggest to you that swimming is boring and that you just go up and down. <laughs> yeah. and, and quite clearly, you don't feel like that. But equally... I mean, I know I'm probably potentially quite a lazy individual and just getting up to go and do a TV or a radio show can be an effort for me. How do you find that determination, that perseverance, day in, day out, knowing that there's no guarantee of success? At, at 5am as well, because that's exactly that's standard swimming training time, isn't it? Yeah, actually, I used to have to get up at 5 to 5, but I changed my clock so that it didn't say 4.55. It actually said 5.01, so it made me feel better. <laughs> but <laughs> these little things. Um, you know, it was, it's never really a question. It's, it's just it's very simple. If you want to win, you have to train. Training was in early in the mornings. We had to get in, you know, three sessions a day, two swimming, one land training. I was at a club, so I was training with a lot of guys who were either at college, at working or still at school. So training later in the morning wasn't an option. And yeah, I mean, there was no morning that I woke up and bounded out of bed thinking, woohoo, here we go. But I woke up and thought, right, you know, it's training. And if I want to, if I want to win, if I want to swim fast, if I want to get quicker, I've got to train. So there was never... Yeah, it's just this, it's a very, very simple equation. <laughs> did, did you ever just roll over and go back to sleep? Never. Never. And there, I mean, when I was, um, for a year and a half, I trained on my own. Um, I fell out with the coach at my local swimming club and started training with a coach who was up in London. So he was uh, sending me sessions down in the, in the, by phone the night before. My mum would take me to a school pool I'd swim and then she came and picked me up and I was the only person in the pool. And the bursa used to open up. It was um, Brighton College and he used to come and open up for me, rain or shine, Christmas Day, whatever day it was, he'd come and open up the pool for me. And there were some mornings where I'd be in the car thinking, oh, I hope he's forgotten, I hope he's forgotten. (laughs) But I would never have not gone myself. You know, if it was someone else it caused me not to be able to swim, then that, that would have been... You know, well, it's not my my fault, but I I would never have just not gone. 
Okay, so if we have that attitude in mind then, as we take you back to your 16-year-old self, you're this raw, talented teenager, but you've been overlooked for selection for the 1988 Olympic Games when you were convinced you should have gone. And you've admitted just there that it, it could have been the end of your career, right there at 16. What was it that got you over that and made you go on to have the extraordinary career you did? Yeah, it was it was a difficult time. I mean, it's... it's probably not something to get to get really stuck into now but there were there were reasons why I wasn't selected and it was it was quite personal right. not because I wasn't quick enough and so I just made a deal with my coach where we just said right next Olympics they're not going to be able to leave me behind so I just had to make myself so good or so much better than anyone else that they couldn't get away with leaving me behind. So when I went to the Olympic trials in Sheffield in 92, I broke the British record in the heat and the final. So there was just no chance. So I think it was just setting that mindset. I knew it wasn't down to me that I hadn't gone to Seoul. And that experience probably would have been good come Barcelona, but it definitely, it definitely spurred me on to just make sure no one could ever leave wow. me behind again. Mm. Did, did you end up watching any of Seoul or couldn't you it? Bear was it was hard. I remember I was, I was training at the time um, and one of the things that still now upsets me is that I wasn't there to see Adrian Morehouse win. I watched him swim some incredible races, you know, the first time anyone broke 60 seconds for a 100 metres breaststroke in a 25 metre pool short course. Obviously, the swimmers are all doing that in a 50 metre pool now, but back then, um, you know, so I'd seen, I, I got to see him do some incredible races, but I never saw him win an Olympic title live. And, and that's, that's quite a regret. And in terms of what happened to you in 88, I can only imagine the pride you felt when you put on a British tracksuit and you went to Barcelona in 92. I remember going with the BBC radio team to Atlanta in 96 and feeling a, a great sense of pride that I was part of a you know, British broadcasting event at the Olympic Games. But to actually be participating, Karen, was it every bit as special as you'd imagined it to be? You know, it, it really was, and more. I think um, the athletes now probably have a lot more preparation, education and understanding what an Olympic Games is about. Obviously, the whole sporting setup is a lot more professional now than, than it was in the 80s and 90s. Um, so it, it was actually quite a shock. I did feel incredible pride. I also felt quite overwhelmed. Um, I felt... You know, when you see the kind of mighty, loud, you know, in-your-face American team arrive, um, it's it's very intimidating. And actually learning to kind of walk tall and, you know, realise actually I've earned my right to be here, I've qualified, I'm part of this, that's quite a, a journey in itself. So, you know, and it's just a, such a strange environment, you know, being... Being in the Olympic Village and you're just walking around, you know, I stand in the queue for my lunch and turn around and Boris Becker stood behind me. You know, you've got these kind of, you know, waiting for some chips and you've got these kind of icons of sport just um, mooching around. And, you know, so as a, a kid, as a, a big lover of all sport, to see so many amazing athletes in one place and to have that realisation, OK, I'm an Olympian, I'm actually part of this 
was was very special. Hang on a minute. What were you doing eating chips in the middle of the Olympics? I wasn't. I mean, it was, oh, it was Boris, Boris, definitely. <laughs> That's just Boris. You <laughs> I know mean, him, Marcus. It, it might, to be fair, it might not have been chips, but, you know. <laughs> but what a games that was, eh? Barcelona, the, mm. the setting of it and the stadium up on the hill and those iconic diving photos as well. I mean, it must be amazing, amazing memories to look back on now. It was, and, you know, Barcelona wasn't really a particularly well-known city prior to those Olympics, and it, it changed the city in terms of tourism. We had a, a fantastic setting of, of the village as well, which was on the beach, and obviously the pool um, by the diving pool up on Montjuï was, was just very, very special. And, you know, obviously I had nothing to compare it to, um, I just thought it was spectacular and uh, being able to go and watch um, other events. Um, you know, I once the swimming was over, obviously the swimming is, was the first um, seven days, I think it was in Barcelona. And then to have the freedom to just watch sport. You know, I remember us all crowding round our TVs in our apartment block, watching um, Linford Christie run and watching Sally Gunnell and then being able to actually go to the track and see a number of live events. I was just going sport all day um, and just, you know, soaking it all in and, and being a very loud fan. <laughs> That's how you should be. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, and that, that to me is, is just been part of the Olympics. We, you know, swimmers, the downside is I've never been to an opening ceremony, but um, once the swimming was over, because we're the first few days, then we get to enjoy and, you know, really support the rest of the team. And I've made the most of that. There's always there's always been a bit of a running gag, hasn't mm-hmm. there? I know uh, what you're going to say. Around Olympic time, that it's always the swimmers' <laughs> fault, you know, the chaos in the village. It's the swimmers who are having the time of their life in weeks two and three. How, how, much, how much truth is there to that, Karen? Well, I mean, there is an element of truth to it because um, the swimming is one of the first ones to be finished as a major sport. And the swimmers have always tended to go out en masse. So you can't miss us. You know, once once the the racing was over, it wasn't just, for instance, the British team that would go out. All the swimmers would have made a decision together where they were going to go out and celebrate. So you had hundreds um, all leaving um, you know, moving around the village and leaving and 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 going out. So um, I guess we were then, we were difficult to miss. And then 3am, here come the swimmers, like clockwork. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the broadcasters. In. I mean, I don't know what to say about that bit, but <laughs> we tried to come back quietly. And, um, you know, I do, I do remember in Barcelona when the rowers came back to the village, they requested to uh, be put in the sleeping quarters of the swimmers. Oh, really? They, they, they'd heard about the parties, <laughs> clearly. Who, who was the ringleader at that time then on the social side? Oh, my goodness. Um... I think there was a number. Like I said, it wasn't just the British team. It was all the teams would arrange where to go. Um, And, uh, you know, my first Olympics, my roommate was Sharon Davis. So uh, we've been friends ever since. This is Sport on the Fields, in association with Aldi UK, the official supermarket partner of Team GB. And we're in conversation with Karen Pickering, one of the most decorated British swimmers of all time. Multiple world champion, multiple Commonwealth champion, four Olympic Games, but no Olympic medals. And we wondered when she arrived in Athens for her final Olympics in 2004, whether that was on her mind. 
I've never, at Barcelona I swam well, but Atlanta and Sydney I didn't really swim as well as I would have liked. I wasn't well in Atlanta. And then Sydney, I was probably still coming back because I, I broke my back at the end of 1996 in a car accident and it took me quite a while to recover from that. So I was probably still coming back. But I did always feel like I'd underperformed at an Olympic game. So there was always a bit of <clears throat> pressure for me, even, you know, in Athens that, even though that was really, to, well, right towards the end of my career, I was uh, coming up for 33 at that point. So I, I understood it more, but it didn't make it any less important or exciting or daunting or special. And actually, we, we our performance director wanted us to come straight back from the Olympics and compete in the national championships at home. And I remember really having quite a, a battle with him saying there are a number of swimmers I was lucky it would have been you know my fourth Olympics but there were a number who will only ever go to one Olympic Games and to take away the experience by making them come home the day after I felt was really wrong and that they should be allowed to enjoy you know being part of the team and do a closing ceremony so the compromise was that we had to come back to do a meet but that we could fly back at our own cost to attend the opening uh, the closing ceremony which the whole swim team did wow and that, that was Bill Sweetenham, was it? It was, yeah. <laughs> One of the many battles. But yeah, I just felt he was wrong. I mean, he talked about how many Olympic Games he'd been to and didn't quite appreciate that for some people it would be won and that would be it. Mm. So to, to not accept that this is the pinnacle and let them soak it all up and enjoy every minute, I just didn't think was the right, right decision. No. I mean, you said one of many, many battles. I mean, when you, when you retired, you, you put out quite a, a considered but you know, quite vocal statement. Um, for the reasons why you, you gave up. I mean, it did sound like you, you felt it had all gone a bit too far. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't agree with the way he behaved or coached. Um, I think he was very good at the organisation. I think he was very good at bringing juniors through. <clears throat> but he had a, a it's-my-way-or-no-way attitude. Like I said, I was coming up for 33 at those Olympic Games. Um, I had a wealth of training under my belt. But he expected me to train like the 15-year-olds. And when I would say, and my coach would say, that's not, that's not how I train, I'm quality, not quantity, he said that I was a poor role model because of it, because I wasn't in the pool for longer, swimming faster. It wasn't a pleasant way to end my swimming career. I did 20 years on the Great Britain senior team and it was it was really sad to go out being looked at as not a not a good role model. I I just got this image of my in my mind of the entire team flying back on EasyJet or something to Athens for the, for the closing ceremony. I mean just <laughs> yeah. just paint the picture there for us. I mean so so you'd all paid for your tickets, right, to go to go back having been forced to come home. Yeah, we were basically told before actually we'd even um, done our events at the trials, we had to declare whether or not we were going to retire after the Olympic Games. Right. Um, and then, yeah, before even okay. qualifying at the trials, we had to fill in forms. And then. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, surely. basically. Because uh, you don't want to be thinking of that before an Olympic Games. You don't really want to be thinking that far ahead. You just want to think about the moment. You had to fill out a form. <laughs> saying if you were going to retire yes yes and then and then funding was going to depend on that but also 
if you were going to retire, you didn't have to come back and swim the national short course championships. So I think there were two swimmers who knew that was that was the end for them. <clears throat> so they were allowed to stay out in Athens. Everyone else was had to come back or they would lose their funding. So they had to come back. We went to, my goodness, I'm trying to remember. Oh, uh, Manchester, I think it was, for the national short course championships. And then because I sort of sat down and had this argument, <clears throat> negotiations with uh, Bill Sweetenham, we were allowed to fly back. But it was, I mean, the team manager came with us. We did, we were all at the airport. We all flew back. We all arrived back at the village. I think we had one night and then the closing ceremony was the next day. So we were then allowed to actually just, you know, say goodbye to the Olympic Games. Yeah. It's yeah. bizarre. I mean, I think it's very different today, Karen, or, or is the same sort of uh, Machiavellian antics going on behind the scenes? I think it's think? very different. You know, the coaches now um, are much more about trying to get the best out of individuals. So they do realise that, you know, there's not one size fits all. And, and there are different ways people respond differently to training. And actually, you don't need to be pounding up and down a pool for hours and hours. There's a lot more cross training. There's a lot more... Um, you know, land training and weights, it's, they're much more educated, there's much more science behind it. It doesn't get away from the fact that they work their backsides off. I mean, you'll have seen some of the videos that um, Adam Peaty posts. These guys work hard. There's absolutely no getting away from it, but they, they work smarter, much smarter. And so I think there's definitely a different attitude towards it. There's different money involved. Swimmers will go off and choose to swim different events because they might be able to earn some money. Um, but there, I think there's definitely an element now where you've earned the right to actually stop, pat yourself on the back and look at what you've done. There is no point permanently looking ahead. If the Olympic Games are the pinnacle, then you have to stop and go, OK, I just did it. You can't finish your last race and then immediately think, no. what next, what next, what next? You have to take a moment and go, OK, I did it. Now what? Absolutely. And you mentioned the car crash where you broke your back. Yeah. Now that's uh, that's obviously a, it's a bummer. potentially life changing <laughs> experience. I mean, just just talk us through the the immediate reaction you had to that, and, and just how difficult it was yeah. to get yourself back on your and, feet after and to how, the level that you had to get yeah. to. And how did um, it not end your career? Uh, well, it was November the sixteenth, nineteen ninety six, and I was driving to training, and a lady pulled out of a side junction in front of me, and I couldn't swerve because of oncoming traffic, so I just had to drive into the side of her. So the kind of immediate thing was I didn't initially know what what sort of injuries I had. The car was damaged, but, you know, it wasn't a write-off. I hadn't been going fast. It was a road in town. So it kind of didn't, I didn't quite know um, until the next day when I couldn't, I really couldn't move um, that I'd done some damage. So um, it was a lower facet joint, not my spine. So I was never in danger of being paralysed. Yeah, I was struggling at, to move. Um, and I guess to sum up, it took three years, about three years to get back to full training. There were, so I was 24 at that point. Um, and there were people within the sport who just said, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit old, but bit long in the tooth, someone said to me, to be a swimmer anyway, at that point. So perhaps I should just give up. Um, you know, I'm never going to make it back or the rest of it. 
which I thought was really odd. And I just couldn't walk away. I, you know, I couldn't just roll over and let someone else have my place on the team. So whilst it took me a long time to get back to full training and it was difficult because, you know, there's there's no space on the scoreboards for excuses, um, I didn't miss a major championship. I was still competing, albeit not as quick and at times in quite a lot of pain. I guess you probably found out who your friends were in those days as well. As you say, a lot of people were suggesting that at 24, you're a bit old in the tooth. But I suspect you're the sort of person as well that the more someone says you can't do something, the more you want to prove to them that you can. Is it that obvious? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And unfortunately, my children are just like me. Don't do that. Well, that bodes well for the future of British swimming or or, or whatever it might be with with them. But look, I mean... uh, as you say, you didn't miss a major championships and it's worth reiterating what what an amazing career you had because not long after your first Olympic Games, you won your first world title, you won your first Commonwealth title and you continued basically mopping up um, and have such an amazing collection of medals stored somewhere under a, under a bed somewhere at Shea Pickering. <laughs> But obviously at Olympic level, Karen, it, it, it never quite happened for the variety of reasons that you've told us about already. Did that, did that nag at you Still throughout does. your career? Are you able to reflect now with satisfaction or, or regret? Still, it still nags at me because as an athlete, the Olympic Games are the, are the goal, they're the pinnacle. Um, although the Commonwealth Games have always been incredibly special because I remember watching a Commonwealth Games as a kid before an Olympic Games. So the Commonwealth Games have always had um, a real special place in my heart. When you set yourself the goal of achieving at an Olympic Games, when it doesn't happen, there is a sense of failure. So um, there is definitely a sense of I failed in my job as a swimmer because I didn't achieve what I needed to achieve at Olympic Games. I did pick up a, you know, a number of major championship medals. I think, I don't know, 35, I think it is in total over that sort of 20-year career. But, you know, I sort of, people have said, would you swap those for one Olympic medal? Um, and it's, it's a really tricky, it's a real tricky one for me. I sat next to um, Steve Backley at an event once and we were being introduced and I was introduced before him and they read out my list of achievements and he sat there and went, oh, brilliant, I've got to come next. And I couldn't understand that mentality because he's an Olympic medalist. So I couldn't understand how he could look at what I'd done like I'd done something special because to me, I just, you know, I was missing what's there. Um, and I think, you know, Team GB always had a way of separating the medalists and the non-medalists and they would treat the medalists as VIPs when they arrive at, back at the airport and, you know, would be treated differently and anyone who's a non-medalist was just uh, off you go. So there was, there was definitely a sense of a difference between the two. Uh, yeah, I will always have a sense of not quite doing everything I needed to do because of it. Well, that's being hard. That's being hard. When you look at the <laughs> astonishing yeah. set of um, medals that you did win, and as Jonathan wondered, where do you keep them all? So I've, I've got a jar of sort of um, county and um, some sort of small international meet medals, but I keep my major championship ones in a little shoe bag in a drawer and just because I still take them out for school events. So I don't have any of them on display or anything. They're just tucked away. 
but you've got them. That's the most important thing. I've got them. You wouldn't them, believe yeah. the number of people who've yeah, got no moment... clue where the medals are, and you just think, how how can that happen? When you can still remember the race, you don't need the medals, and you need the medals out when you can't remember the actual race in the moment anymore. You've got a lot to remember. That's the good thing. <laughs> yeah. It's been fascinating chatting to you. There's one thing I want to ask you about before before we go, um, which is in the second part of your career, your your broadcasting career. And we were both in the water cube in Beijing, yeah. that extraordinary uh, illuminated arena, on that incredible night when Michael Phelps won won the butterfly. Do you remember? Yes. That? What? Um, just how, how can we forget? Just it? won it. Yes. Just. I I think, and I've been wanting to mention this on on some of the episodes already in this series. I think that is probably the most incredible sporting thing I've ever seen live. Because what happened, everyone thought Phelps was, was a shoe-in for yet another, yet another gold medal. And yet this guy, Milorad Kavic was his name. Yeah. He was there. He had him. And he was going to win. Yeah. But Phelps threw in this sort of extraordinary, almost extra half a stroke, flinging his arms over his shoulders in this desperate lunge for the line. Kavic thought he had it. He was, he was sliding for the wall. And then Phelps just lunges and charges over his right shoulder, crashes into the wall, probably breaks all his fingers and wins gold by whatever it would have been, one trillionth of a, a second. I mean, what, a hundredth what, of a second, yeah. For me, that, that was in, incredible, Karen. I mean, you've, you've seen a lot more than I have in, in swimming, but I don't, I still to this day, I don't quite know how he did that. No, and, um, and I think obviously because that was part of the, the, the eight that he was, he was going for at a, an Olympic mm. Games... That race was, I mean, it was probably the most talked about race ever because, you know, how many times that finish was played over and over and over again underwater, the, you know, to see that finish. But for anyone, for any, you know, up and coming swimmer or any athlete, really, if you think that the little things like starts and turns and finishes don't matter, then watch Michael Phelps swim because he always won the close ones. But that one was extraordinary. He just smashed the wall. He just finished stronger than Kavic. And he smashed the wall. And, and that was the difference between him becoming really iconic for his achievements and coming close to being iconic for his achievements. That was, yeah, yeah it was extraordinary. And, my God, the, the place went crazy, didn't it? Oh, it did. There was that heart-stopping half a second, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah. But between the moment they hit the wall and the names coming up on the board, you know, and you turn immediately, Marcus, to the board because you need to yeah. know who's got it. Who's got it? Who's got it? Who's got it? It's got to be Cabbage. Who's got it? Who's got it? It's got to yeah. be Cabbage. It's got to be... Who's got it? I know. It's Phelps! I know. How? How was? Yeah. How did that even happen? Just amazing. That's what sport and does Particularly, though, guys, in the Olympics and, and in those sports where all that effort for years and years comes down to a fraction of a second. That's what still blows my mind every time one of those extraordinary finishes take place. Yeah. Karen, thanks so much for taking all that time and for coming on. And um, We wish you all the very best for the rest of, uh, of your, your busy life as a working mum and as a, as a brilliant broadcaster. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. I've enjoyed that. Thank you, Karen. <laughs> I'm going to go and look for the medal I won as an eight-year-old. Um, it was the... Um, <laughs> The West Sutton Swimming Championships. I look at it on a regular basis. 
So there we go, Karen Pickering, and uh, she's got her medals tucked away, Marcus. She's got memories to last a lifetime as well, and boy, she got some stories as well. I mean, that stuff she was saying about Athens 2004, right at the end of her career, scarcely believable. Yeah, that that, that story about the, the way that they were managed back then, it, uh, you're left scratching your head. And I have to say, Jonathan, that I've got two um, young sons who... who play tennis to a reasonable mm. level. And I haven't obviously experienced what it's like when you, you get to the highest echelons of the sport, but just some of the bureaucracy that, that I've seen um, at a relatively modest level in tennis does beg a belief. So you, you have to think it's not just swimming that, that experience no. those sorts oh, of goodness. problems. Oh, goodness, don't get me it, started it on that. I mean, it, I heard some horror no. stuff. I mean, hopefully, look, it's, it's a slightly better now, but maybe going back 10 years or so, I heard some absolute horror stories. I mean, at the end of the day, it's sport. It's fun. Yeah. These are kids. We want them to enjoy yeah. their life, don't we? Don't stand there hovering over their shoulder with clipboards, ticking things off at every turn, checking on them at every turn, making demands. I mean, it's no wonder people drop out of sport, Marcus, if, if that's the sort of environment they're experiencing. Well, I guess those in control are feeling pressure, and as a result, they then put it straight on to the youngsters that they're bringing through, but um, quite clearly that is not mm. the way to achieve no, long-term success. You see, success. I think the problem is the people at the very top are feeling the pressure, so they put it on to the person not quite at the top. Exactly. So the, the middle manager. And then the middle manager is looking after someone else in the regions, so the pressure is then put on to that person. And then everyone is feeling this responsibility to have success, to tick boxes, to make up the numbers. And if you've got all those different levels of power feeling the same thing, absolutely it's going to filter down. Let the kids enjoy themselves. Let the parents get them there if they can. Don't put pressure on the parents to be there at seven o'clock every Saturday morning because you know what? There are other things going on in these families' lives that you won't even know about because you're not actually that interested. So don't pile the pressure on in those ways and maybe our kids will enjoy sport for what it is and therefore stay in it for longer and, and that's why Jonathan that the yeah there's a bit of passion in there and that's why you look at some of the great football managers in particular those who know how to deal with individuals and one person has to be dealt with in one way another in another and they obviously are the ones that go on and enjoy the most success because we're all unique we're all individuals and we mm. need to be treated in a certain way. And if you can't do that, if you've got this carte blanche, you must do this, you must sign that. Well, you know what's going to happen. Marcus, it's been a pleasure. We'll hear from you again later in the series. Look forward to it. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> Who's that? Oh, you've got, you got going there. I like that. <laughs> I think that might be British tennis on the phone. <laughs> See you later. Sport in the Fields is a 94.19 independent production. In association with Aldi UK, official supermarket partner of Team GB.